Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Richard Hand. Hello, Richard. Hi. And how are you this morning? Oh, very well, thanks. Yeah, looking forward to doing this. Good, good, good. Yes, that is. This, the this we are talking about is five great British horror films. And uh, that's bit, that, I, th- I think Richard's probably one of our most qualified people to come on. So do you want to <laughs> just give us a quick background as to what you do, first and foremost? Yeah, okay. I'm not sure how qualified, but I'm a professor of media practice at the University of East Anglia. Right. And uh, over the years, I've done a lot of work on horror in theory, but also in practice. So you make films as well? Not so much films, more theatre works and also radio plays and okay. audio plays. So if in a nutshell, you know, when, when you get you know, that, those, those raw recruits, first year students, what, what are you telling them that is the essence of a good horror? I think what I tell them is is that kind of experiential aspect of it, you know, how it gets the adrenaline rush going, Hmm. how it's a bit of a ride. And I think that's a core thing not to forget. You may have fantastic ideas, uh, novel ideas and things you want to put into it, but actually it is that experience of the person gripping the handles of the seat kind of thing that you you don't want to lose sight of. Yeah, no, I think think one of the best ones of that in recent years was was A Quiet Place in the sense of, I went in completely blind. It was an absolute roller coaster, as you described it. And then maybe, you know, two hours after I leave the cinema, I can pick it apart. But it doesn't matter because the film did its job. That's right. And uh, when I went to see it at the cinema, you know, there were people who bought popcorn. It was hilarious because everyone's looking around at them, you know. And just the way it got that group experience, you know, yeah. and that wonderful laughter you get in a horror film, mm. you know, the right, the right kind of laughter, you know, <laughs> that's not pulling it apart, but is adding to it, you know. No, totally, yeah, no, no. The, 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 horror work best. Horror does work best, I think, with an audience if if it's working. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, the other reason that we've got you here, not just because you're very qualified to talk about horror films you might like, but also you're about to do a. Um, a presentation or a lecture, I don't know what you call it. Uh, Horror and Hilarity, the legacy of the Grand Guillaume in, um, for the uh, Miskatonic studies. That's right, yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I'm, you know, big honour to go along there and, you know, I've been aware of their talks that they do in, in London and America um, mm. and, you know, it's going to be great being part of that, I think. Really looking forward to it. I mean, it's not a subject I'm not familiar with, uh, the Grand Guillaume, but I, I saw uh, Frank Ribier's movie that played at Fright Fest this year, The Most Assassinated Woman in the World, which, yeah. was, a, which was a lovely uh, sort of, through one person, a lovely insight into the sort of phenomena of the Grand Guillaume, I think. 
That's right. I mean, it was an amazing institution, um, you know, set up in the 1890s and closed in the ni- early 60s. But the, the influence is there. I mean, Grongy Knowles entered the language, hasn't it? You mm. know, normally any new horror movie comes out, there'll be one reviewer who wants to be clever and says, oh, this is very Grongy Knowles film. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it was an, a, an amazing place because it was a deconsecrated chapel in the back streets of Paris. Um, which they they turned into a theatre, even though they still have the smell of incense and candle wax, uh, which added to the the kind of displays there. And they did uh, every night they do a repertoire of short plays, um, interspersing comedy as well, as well as sort of really gruesome horror. Mm. Um, and it's legendary for its special effects. You know, le- the legend is they invented a stage blood that congealed under the, the uh, stage lights and and all of these displays. And they had a house doctor to look after people who were fainting or vomiting or whatever it was so it has this kind of wonderful legend of, of a kind of really you know site-specific place you know the, the show began before the show began really you know what I mean before the yeah, place yeah, yeah. began just the whole entering the building it, it just sounded wonderful yeah no no, no that, um and that, that's certainly the uh the, the, the idea of it you get from uh, from Frank Ribier's film certainly um so that's Thursday the 7th of Feb it's at the Horse Hospital which is central London for those who don't know it, and I'll put a link to the uh, to the to, to buy tickets and the address and details in the show notes for the podcast. Oh, great! Thank you, Stuart. Great. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now let's get on to the main event now, which is <laughs> your five great British horror films. Which I should remind the audience isn't me saying to um, to my guests that come on, uh, define me five great British horror films. It's more for us to talk about five good films that deserve a conversation or films that took your fancy, that excited you for whatever reason. And in, in the time I've been doing this, I've had, I've had a vast array of stuff. I've had the obvious, you know, Blood on Satan's Claw, Don't Look mm-hmm. Now, um, Wicker Man, which if you go and look at many lists, they're usually one of the top five in the consensus yeah. list. But I've also had um, public information films. <laughs> I've also had Apex Twin videos. I've also had Paul Sykes documentaries, uh, you know, so it's, I'm willing to let the guests define what they see as being a great British horror film. And therefore, we can talk about it and hopefully introduce people to new ideas, as well as shine a light on some of the great and the good of what's been what you would call traditional horror films. Yeah, great, great, brilliant. Sounds wonderful. Okay, well, look, first one, Against the Clock, five minutes, five films. When Edgar Broughton Band sings out, Demons out. We will uh, we will move on to the next film. So, starting in 1945 with Dead of Night. Yes, Dead of Night, wonderful film produced by Ealing. You know, most most famous for their comedies, but uh, boy, could they produce a horror film with with Dead of Night? Um, I, I just I love the film because it's a wonderful early example of the portmanteau style, mm. uh, which becomes so important. Obviously, the the wonderful Amicus films in in the 70s. Uh, you know, owe a lot to that. And um, and also, I think for me, you know, it does link to the Grand Guignol, the Grand Guignol Theatre, interspersed short plays, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was about to say that, actually, you, having what your introduction had said, I was thinking I never made that connection before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's, um, you know, it's a very, a very clear kind of uh, drawing on that tradition. And it's that wonderful Gothic tradition of framed storytelling, you know, um, I mean, that's one thing I love with Dead of Night is how you've got the, the core story of the architect uh, who's just suffering a bit of deja vu. Um, and then, you know, everyone's sharing those kind of weird experiences with him. 
There's some there's some really interesting tidbits around this film that I find fascinating because it's it, you'll not be surprised that Dead and Night has, has, has been on a couple of um, Five Grip Genre films. So I thought yeah. it, it was it was in my it was in my interest to go and find find something new that I could I could sort of refer to. Cosmos, cosmologists Fred Hoyle, Thomas Gold, and Herman Bondy developed steady state theory of the universe, an alternative to the Big Bang, after seeing Dead of Night. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful, <laughs> isn't it? The idea of the circular nature of the plot inspired their theory. Fantastic, fantastic! That that is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> and the the the, um, the actress Elizabeth Welch, the black actress, I should, should mention, was was seen to be a fairly much a breakthrough role in terms of black actors in film, um, in the sense that she had her own agency and, and the like, and was an important part of the story. You know. Well, I, I think I think that's right, Stuart, with the film. I mean, there there is so much in there. You know, obviously, there's that the Christmas party ghost story thing, mm. which is a wonderful bit of. Victoriana and looks forward to to that kind of filmic tradition as much as it's drawing on the old Victorian Gothic stories. Mm. Um, but there's the, the the one about the haunted mirror. Yeah, is absolutely fascinating in terms of gender, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, Googie Withers is magnificent in it, and and you've got her the dominant figure in the relationship and this deeply flawed partner. You know, there's something wrong with, with him, and it captures that kind of. It's almost sort of post-war mood, I think. You know these fractured men, uh, and it, you know it is an amazing film if you if if you look at it. You know, and it's I suppose in some ways people might say, oh, it's just a horror melodrama kind of thing, but actually, there's much more to it than that. I was going to say later later in in in, in the century, we'd be a lot more scared to to sort of tackle take those issues head on, and it, it may have been like a kind of a bit of a, the guard was down because we were just finishing the war, as it were. So. Attitudes were were maybe a bit sort of in a state of flux, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think there's that that sense of things kind of recentering and and restabilizing. You're getting the same same in America, aren't you, with film noir and mm. the radio equivalents of that, where there there are these damaged men, you know, these traumatic men who cannot express what they've been through and what they've become. And then you've got these women who've got used to new freedoms, yeah, and yeah, yeah. new agency. Um, so, you know, and it, I think it's it's a wonderful film in that way. You, you can analyse it in, in, in those terms, you know. With, and what I love with the portmanteau form is you can't dick around. You know, you've got to hit the ground running with these stories. Uh, you know, you haven't got a 90-minute <laughs> canvas to play with. You know, mm. they have to be efficient. And I think that's what makes all of them thrilling. I mean, I even like the golfer's story, which I know people don't like, silly comedy thing, but... It, it's still it's it's a lovely structure to it, you know. And, um, and did you and, did you see what happened in America when the film got released? They, they no, no they, tell they, me. They figured it was too long, and they yeah. and they edited the golfer story out. So there's American audiences didn't couldn't relate to some of the conversations in the Lincoln stuff because they right. hadn't seen they hadn't seen it. <laughs> but the, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Because again, it's like the Gongadolas I mentioned. Um, you know, they'd put comedies in between horror plays. And people would say, oh, it's light relief, I can relax. Yeah. But actually, it's a really nasty trick because it hits you even harder then, doesn't it? If you've been having a laugh or something. Of course. Um, and it's the same with Dead of Night, isn't it? We go from the haunted mirror to the golfer's story to the ventriloquist dummy, don't we? Mm. Um, and you can see it actually has a real strategic position in there, doesn't it? Between the two heavyweight stories, really. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like, I guess it's in the same way that a band playing a gig don't play you know, anthemic tunes from start to finish. They need to give people a rest. So so when you yeah. reach a crescendo, it works. Yeah, 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 that's it. Because you're, you're, you're taking people even higher then, aren't you, with it? So, uh, yeah. Oh, there's our first our first call. Live, that flew by. 
Indeed, indeed. Well, <laughs> fast forwarding to uh, 1961 now, to the film that inspired Kate Bush to write the song The Infant Kiss, which appears on the 1980 album Never Forever. Um, Jack Clayton's The Innocents. Yeah, I think I think a, a wonderful film that in some ways gets better and better with time. It's um, a terrific adaptation, uh, taking Henry James's turn of the screw, which, of course, is a magnificent, um, you know, the, the ultimate Victorian ghost story, isn't it? Because mm. it walks that tightrope, doesn't it? Is, is this a delusion or is it the supernatural? Yeah. What's more frightening? Probably the delusion is more frightening than the supernatural. And sure. I think the film does a fine job of that balance as well, with, without being a slave to the literature. You know, it, it, it's its own thing. It understands film and the potential of the cinematography. You know, Freddie Francis, of course, doing that. Um, beautiful film to, to look at. And yet it has that tightrope of something very, very chilling, I think. When did you first see this film? In what context? Well, I, th- I saw it on telly years ago as a kid, yeah. you know, and, and, and thought it was wonderful. Um, and then read the story later, you know, yeah. so it yeah, introduced yeah. me to Turn of the Screw. And then you realise actually Deborah Carr was way too old if you're going to go by Henry James. But actually she makes it her own. I think it's a fantastic thing. She's doing the same year as she's doing The King and I and things like that. Yeah, she's yeah, doing yeah. wonderful, wonderful kind of creepy role. Um, so yeah, and I, I just thought um, I, it probably helped me because Henry James is a difficult writer, isn't he? And and actually, just seeing the purity of this story was a really good way in to to make me persevere with reading James for the first time. <laughs> really, really, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting how because it's because it's playing with the ghost story and or the delusion of 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 seeing ghosts. It's it's probably why it stands its test of time, isn't it? Because yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, the way it uses space and location is just wonderful. I mean, it's a terrific location for the house and and the and Miss Jessel, the ghost of Miss Jessel in the reeds across the lake. Um, and then, and you know, it's and it's deeply frightening in places and weirdly erotic as well at times. I think when you in, hear in what, the, in what way? Well, I think there's that that moment where she, the governess is walking through the house at night and she's hearing breathing and and this kind of the sweatiness of the environment. And later you've got the condensation on the windows that mm. just looks so extraordinary. Peter Wingard looming through, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, but it 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 does have that feverish quality, um, which you know, which is like her her straight, literally straight laced clothing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it kind of. It's something wants to sort of bodice rip that open. I think you know. Okay, okay, okay. But it's, I mean, but I suppose that that is about belief, belief, and, and not belief as well, isn't it? In a sense, it's like let yourself go or keep it all buttoned up. It's sort of this yeah. can't be happening because it shouldn't happen, or you know. That's right, and, and what's so brilliant within that? I mean, that's what I mean. Henry James knew this as well, but but in the film, uh, you know, Martin Stevens, wonderful child actor who mm. left it all behind, didn't he? You know, he did a few films and then had enough of it, and he was in Village of the Damned and things like that, and he such an eerie little kid, but a wonderful performer, really. I mean, extraordinary. And and, and him and, and the girl as this these kind of um, victims in, in this, you know, uh, yeah, re- really, really something, I think. And, one, and it's, it's also a bit of a groundbreaker for, uh, for sound effects, isn't it? Because it features yeah. the wonderful work of, um, of Daphne Oram. With her uh, her electronica, which which I mean, amazingly, she's uncredited for in the film. Uh, it's not it's not. Um, mm. I mean, 
George Orrick gets the, 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 the music by. But obviously these days we would consider electronic to be music, not not sound effects. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think it's um, I think that it's had a big impact, the film, hasn't it? Obviously films like The Others, you know, mm. much more recently, um, you know, which I enjoyed at the time. I'm not sure how well that's standing up now, ironically, though things like The Innocence, you know, it's, it's the original woman in black in some ways, isn't it? Of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, it still has a really good quality to it, I think. Well, I mean, I mean, Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro puts it in his top six films. Um, yeah. I think that I think that gives it gives it some of it gives one of his big endorsements. I find it fascinating to learn that in 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 the two thousand and two's The Ring, yeah, there's uh, twenty five seconds of a young boy's muffled singing can be faintly heard. Oh right, and that's taken from the audio track of The Innocence. Oh my God, I didn't realise that's isn't, fantastic. Isn't that yeah. amazing? That is incredible. That is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like it's it's like it can live on in other films, and yet most people are not going to know. Which, in a ghostly sense, is really quite like literally haunting another film. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, there we go. There's a, a good point for us to, to jump nice. on. Nice, lovely, lovely. Right then, jumping into the seventies yeah. with the uh, with the Nigel Neal written uh, the Stone Tape. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I, I just I, I thought this is a fantastic piece of television drama, uh, but it's feature length. It's a good hour course, and a half. Yeah, yeah, long. No, it's a TV movie. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I, and I chose this because you know I had to get Nigel Neal in there somewhere. Such a key figure. I was a huge fan of his TV series Beasts, which he did for ITV, uh, and I remember seeing the episode Baby as a kid, and you know mm. it lived with me for many years. And it was really interesting because I, I saw it when I was about ten, mm. and then saw it again like 30 years on when it was out on dvd and and i i wrote down everything i remembered about seeing it at the age of 10 really and then compared it to 30 years later so that's a nice you know i'm an academic steward it's a nice experiment isn't it no no i like i like the idea i like the idea <laughs> um and it was it was great to see what i'd um what i'd remembered and also misremembered from episodes of brian clemens thriller and things like that that yeah, are somehow yeah, yeah. mixed in there you know? what do you think it is that i mean because nigel neil's career is is, is, a, is a is a is a long one and he's it, and it is, is, is sort of grounded in sort of british sci-fi and horror uh what do you think it is he gets about the otherworldliness you know the uncanny what is it you think he gets well, I think what what you get with him, and I think Stone Tape sums this up best of all, is he he really understands the experiential. You know that there are jump scares, there's that slow burning creepiness to mm. the Stone, but he also he has just the fan, fantastic ideas and concepts. Mm. Uh, I mean, recently the um there, there's the Lost script, isn't it? The, the, not lost, the Lost broadcast of The Road, wasn't there? Okay, and they, no, I don't know this. What's that? On Radio Four, didn't they, with Mark okay. Gatiss and that? Um, you know, wonderful. And again, he takes a simple idea and extrapolates it in the best science fiction tradition. So he's mm. the kind of perfect mix of science fiction and horror, I think. Yeah. And I think I really think things like the Stone Tape are well up there, you know, in, in that hybrid of sci-fi and horror, which is so close. But often, you know, it, it falls one way or the other. But I think he, he retains that balance with these strong ideas and, and the great thrill of them as well. But I guess as well, he must in that post-war period where he's obviously... He's, his creative juices are flowing from. Do you think he's? Do you think he's also sort of explaining? Sorry, not explaining, but drawing on hopes, hopes of the future, but fears of the future. 
Yeah, I think I think it's there, isn't it? And the stone tape sums that up. That, that kind of technophobia, mm. you know. That um, I mean, I think that's what makes it so brilliant. It's a classic overreaching kind of narrative, isn't it? Mm. A kind of Frankenstein or Doctor Jekyll, but also very H.P. Lovecraft in a way. You know, it's it's the Necronomicon that room in in the stone tape, isn't it? And these guys who think they can handle it in a very macho seventies way. Uh, they just go too far. And, uh, you know, and I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think it is though, that those hopes because it's about science. It's about industry. They're, they're trying to compete with Japan and whatever. It's got that kind of context. Um, but but there's something about, you know, going too far and, and, and digging too deep. <laughs> it's like, a, like an allegory for no deal Brexit, isn't it? It is. It really is. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> So, so uh, it's it's obviously. I mean, it, it, it's um, it's interesting thinking of what this film is is about and where it goes to. But actually, when you look at ghost theory in the twenty first century, there is a view that that buildings resonate with the memories of who live there. That's that's a tried and tested theory, isn't it? It's now yeah. in ghost hunter world. I mean, I'm not saying it's it's a fact or it's real, but certainly people say that's where what we what we believe as being ghosts are sort of latent reverberations of of life that lived in a building yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah and it you know and it kind of makes sense I mean, that's the other thing with nigel neal's work isn't it he can convince you mm. you know you can buy it and, and i mean i think stone tape has become a kind of term hasn't it that people use no 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 residual memory and things <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because stone tape is it's it, until i started this podcast series it wasn't a film that was necessarily on my, i knew about it but I d but it's actually one that's come. If, if people haven't selected it, it's come up in conversation a lot. So it's it's a, it's a film that doesn't get broadcast anymore, does it? But it's no. but it but it has a, seems to have a special place. Yeah, I'm, I think I think for me another thing is it it captures that era because the cast are wonderful. You've got people like Ian Cuthbertson, who's obviously going to go on to do Children of the Stones, mm. one of the best children's horror TV shows. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got, yeah, you've got the kind of the wobbly sets of Doctor Who and all that, but it, it's absolutely terrifying. And the way it's looking forward to Ghostwatch or Inside Number Nine, you know, it, it, it's casting a long shadow. And I just love that the acting in it, it's very heightened, um, you know, and, and they wouldn't act like that anymore. But I just think it's that era and you've got people, as I said, like Ian Cuthbertson. Oh. There we go, sir. <laughs> Well, one thing, Stuart, can I no, just... No, add please, no, please add, yeah, no, go on, you Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, I don't know if you heard the binaural radio version with Julian Barrett. No, no, Stoke. no, no. We're really, I could send you a tape of it if you want, you know, ironically. Um, no, I'll send you <laughs> a tape of the stone tape. Um, it, what, what they did was they sort of adapted it and, um, for radio, and it, it works really well because the changes they make to it. But I first time I heard that was with a group called In the Dark who do audio recordings as group listenings yeah and it was in the crypts in one of the churches in holborn oh wow um so and they switched all the lights out but gave us binaural headphones so we experienced the stone tape in this crypt that sounds amazing um, because each of the binaural headphones had little led lights so the, the crypt and its catacombs were lit up very very slightly and it was absolutely terrifying way to listen to that story. In a, I bet, in a, I bet. Oh, really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, sir. Let's. We're gonna. We're only gonna jump one year, but I think totally we're jumping into a different film universe with uh, D Douglas Hitchcock's uh, 1973 uh, Theatre of Blood. 
Right, yeah. Yes, a bit of a cluster in the 70s, isn't it? But I, I think that, that says a lot. I think it is a fantastic era. You'd already you know, mentioned Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man could easily have been in this top five for me as, as well as many other people. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love I love Theatre of Blood. Again, it, it's weirdly like a portmanteau because it's a series of revenges. You know, this, mm. this blighted actor played by um, Vincent Price, Edward Lionheart as a character, um, a wonderful, you know, classic Price performance, but, you know, working with an incredible array of, of British actors. You know, if the Stone Tape has got some of those great stage and TV talents, Theatre of Blood has, has got the, the old guard, hasn't it, really, with Jack Hawkins and Coral Brown and Harry Andrews, you know, amazing. But it, it's almost a portmanteau because he, he meets out revenge on each of them based on a murder in Shakespeare. Um, and uh, and so you get this wonderful balance between the comic and the really nasty kind of death to it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's definitely graphic, but but it's but it's having fun while doing it, isn't it? Which I think is what gets that's away right. with it. Yeah, and and it's very heightened and melodramatic. You know, Robert Morley being stuffed with his own poodles and things like that. Um, at the same time, though, when I saw it as, as a kid, it, it did quite haunt me because it has such a picture of seedy London in the way that Get Carter captures Newcastle. Hmm. You know, there, there is something so seedy with the meth drinkers who become his little entourage. And it has that sense of that sort of decaying inner city feel to it. Well, so, if, that, say, if that was like an offshoot of A Clockwork Orange, you wouldn't have been surprised, would you? That whole, yeah, yeah. that kind of forgotten part of London. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and while Edward is in in his world of Henry Irving or whoever he thinks he is, yeah. Um, but then we see that you know that grotty kind of damp London, you know. Um, and and so there is something actually deeply horrifying about the the film in some ways, as much as it's hilarious, you know. Well, there's, I mean, um, I guess I guess maybe, I mean I'm not thought about it until you said it, but maybe do you think there's some some metaphor there about? about the critics representing the establishment and obviously the, the actors being the outsider and you getting their approval get, lets you in, but without their approval, you're forever on the outside. Yeah, I, th I think that's it. I think that's definitely it, isn't it? And, and that, you know, that is, is quite a powerful film, I think, about the theatrical establishment, you know. And I did see the, um, there was a stage adaptation uh, a few years ago mm. where they made a big deal. That was at the National Theatre and they made a big deal about the building it was in. <laughs> Yeah. Precisely because of that, you know, the, the death of the old Victoriana of the, you know, the velvet red seats and red curtain and everything through to the kind of brutalism mm. of the modern era. And yet there's still this hierarchy and the fact that Edward became this sort of joke to the critics, mm. uh, you know, that, that 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 sort of bitterness that that, that fuels, you know. <laughs> and I guess I guess obviously with it being that kind of almost like portmanteau, is it's very much the, the many faces of Vincent Price, isn't it, as, as, as it's anything yeah. else? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And the whole, I mean, the one I mentioned, the Robert Morley one, where he, Vincent Price acts as a cook, uh, you know, and it's and he's in his element. He was famous as a gourmet, wasn't he? This is part of the legend of Vincent, isn't it? And, oh, really? Um, no, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, I think he was a great gourmet. He was an art collector and gourmet, yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, so I think he was throwing himself into that. But some of the set pieces, I mean, the, the murder of Arthur Lowe, uh, you know, where he's injected and they saw his head off. Mm. And Joan Hicks and his wife is, keeps saying, stop snoring. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable, the dark comedy of that, you know. And again, that's very grongy. I think, again, you know, going back to one of my interests is, is that balance where 
do you you know shudder or do you just roar with laughter? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it's full of it is full of that. I mean, I, I I must admit it was one of those. It didn't come on. I'd not seen it till till the um, till the Blu-ray came out a couple of years ago. That right. was my introduction to it. It was, and I was just I was surprised at how lurid it was and and how. Uh, yeah, yes, there's tongue in cheek, but then it's also very mean, isn't it? It's not. It's not all for laughs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. There's some. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, I remember it, it is quite shocking, isn't it? Some of the murders, you know, the killing of Coral Brown and it, mm. you know, Joan of Arc and everything. Yeah, these are, uh, yeah, quite stark, stark things. <laughs> yeah, but it is. I think it definitely is. It's like it is the quintessential. It's almost like if a role was invented for, uh, oh, sorry, a series of roles were invented is is a sort of overacting Shakespearean. Uh, on a revenge, on a revenge kick, it, it had to be Vincent Price. That's right, and and he's such in a way. It's a kind of... Finish your thoughts, sir. Finish your thoughts. Yeah, no, just a great. It's a culmination of his career, you know, because he was such a a, a kind of straight, sort of serious drama actor in the forties, wasn't he, mm. with Dragwick and also his radio work. But then, you know, gradually how how he how he moved through the fifties and into the Corman films and so on. And it's a weird kind of culmination of his career and that versatility of of a genuinely extraordinary performer, really, I think, you know, um, as I think I think sometimes people see him in a certain way, don't they, with the mm. Corman films or something like that. But it was an extraordinary career. And then, you know, towards the end of his career, doing the Price of Fear on radio, you know, where it's absolutely magnificent as a radio performer going back to his roots, you know, mm. really. Well. No, no, I think it, there's no there's no denying the man, the man is a the man is a star. Um, if I could do it voice, I'd talk like it all the time, Stuart. <laughs> well, you do that, and I'll be Christopher Lee all the time. Okay. okay yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, look, so we're gonna we're gonna jump we're gonna jump decades now, and I think this will this will be the uh, I guess the more challenging choice for people listening who might be used to this, but equally, it's it's all part of the uh, the rich, which rich tapestry of what we might want to deem a great British horror film. You're, you, you've chosen 2011's Dreams of Life by Carol Morley. Do you want to, do you want to start by, I mean, this is, for those that might not know it, because, I mean, it was a, it was a, I guess it got some, I saw it at the cinema, so it got a cinema, it definitely got a cinema release. It's, 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 it's going into the life of someone who died and nobody knew who she was. That's right, yeah. And I'm aware this is a controversial choice. It's, it's a documentary but I mean, one thing is, I mean, it, uh, when I saw it, it did give me a bit of a sleepless night. And mm. I thought, if that, that's a test of a horror film, isn't it? Yeah. And the plot, the plot, the, the true story, this is the thing, it sounds like stranger than fiction, doesn't it? But, um, um, but a, a young woman called Joyce Vincent, who died in her bedsit near Woodgreen Shopping Centre in London, but her body wasn't discovered for several years. And when they found her, it was just skeletal remains surrounded by Christmas gifts she was wrapping. The television was on, the central heating was on. You know, and no one had found her. Mm. And, and it's funny, and I find when I tell people about it, I haven't seen it, several people have said, oh, my God, that's my worst nightmare. Wow. You know, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dying and no one giving a shit, perhaps. Yeah, dying, you know? dying alone. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, I think I'd been aware of the story originally and assumed, oh, it's some little old dear, oh, how sad, you know. But then you realise she was an attractive woman in her 30s. Um, and and that, what's amazing with Carol Morley's film is she pieces things together. You know, she actually did a little campaign, having read the newspaper story, and put ads in the papers and on a black cab round um, London, and, and managed to, you know, garner a group of people, ex-boyfriends, close friends, 
um, and and together they they sort of piece together the story. And I think what I love about it is it, it it's almost like a murder true crime story. And yet she was locked inside a flat. There was no evidence that she'd been murdered. You know, they couldn't do any forensic tests because the body was too decayed. Hmm. Um, so it's like a who done it, but you know, there's no criminal per se unless there's something collective about all of us, this neglect that, that, you know, we, we can have a close friend and not hear from them for a few weeks. And then that turns into years, you know? Um, so it's that, but it's also a weird kind of love story because they, um, Zari Ashton's wonderful in these kind of reconstructed scenes, but they're complete make-believe, you know, with no idea. So you've got her singing songs, you've got her doing stuff. We don't know. There's no evidence of that. Whereas we're in, in a sort of biographical documentary, you're used to things being based on the evidence, you know, mm. and, and it's all speculation. And yet Carol Morley has, has this sort of increasing, almost kind of love for this this Joyce character, and the more the story goes on, people have conflicting accounts of her, you know, and it, it's just it is quite fascinating and, and deeply kind of disturbing. And at the heart of it is the idea of this body lying on the sofa with, next to a shopping bag, you know, um, yeah. and, and, and that kind of haunts us. There's, there's no photographs of it or anything, even though at one point um, Morley puts in just a vague skeletal image, you know, really these haunting kind of indications, you know. Which um, you know send a shiver down you, you know. <laughs> well, no, and it's it's that it's the um, if you think about where we, where we were talking about you know the uncanny, the supernatural, what we don't understand, like you know, and if you're a, if you're a believer of any religion, there's that place you you hope you go to when you die. This film is kind of like the the almost like the mundanity of death is that you just you're just left where you are. There's no magic to it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. If, if nobody, if nobody, you know, processes your death, which obviously, you know, if this had been a skeletal remains found under a building that's been excavated, and it was sort of sixteen hundred, we'd begin to piece their life together. But the idea that you piece a life together of someone found in a flat in twenty in a twentieth century first world country just is anathema to any of us, isn't it? That's right. That's it. Yeah, with with you know traffic roaring past outside, and you know, and all the rest. And that's what I found exactly that having seen it, I found I was walking down the road and you're kind of looking at windows, you know, with the curtains closed and, mm. you know, and uh, you, you begin to think, God, what's what's behind any of these places? You know, mm. nothing, perhaps, you know, and it's um, it's but it, it's that kind of chillingness to it, I think. Um and yeah, it's 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 a really fascinating film. And what makes it as well is the soundtrack by Barry Adamson, mm. who obviously you know did things like um, something wicked this way comes for um, the David Lynch film Lost Highway. So you know, wonderful soundtrack artist. And the music at points is is romantic. At other points, it's like film noir kind of stuff. And other points, it's pure horror. Um, and it, you know, I think for me, it's one of the most interesting examples of film music. You know. That just that how it's complementing this unfurling mystery, um, you know, re really great, great soundtrack. Um, and it's, it, I, I guess, maybe it, it's sort of, cause, oh, I'll, 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 I'll leave that thought for another day. But okay. thank you. It was, it, it's, it's an excellent choice, and I think, I think it's, it's a reminder that, that you know, that 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 horror isn't just something we man, that we manufacture, like you know, to create the roller coaster. You're you're you're, you're talking about with with this film as as your friend's reaction. You know, saying this is my worst nightmare because <laughs> you're confronted with the reality of if you're if you're forgotten, then you're just forgotten. There's no there's no safety net to being forgotten. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, sir, um, that's your five great British horror films. We, uh, I'll do a quick run through just to, to remind people of what we discussed. We've had uh, Dead of Night, 1945. We've had uh, The Innocence, 1961. The Stone Tape, 1972. Theatre of Blood, 73. And then Dreams of a Life, 2001. Now, obviously, you, you, you referenced um, sort of maybe um, overlaps with, with your love of uh, Grand Guillaume in, in, some, in some of the, the ways that the stories were structured and the kind of ways that the, you know, the idea of the horror and then the humour and stuff. But what, 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 to your I mean, I can't think of it. I, I, nothing springs to mind for me, but for you, looking back at what we've just discussed, do you think there's a, there's a, there's a theme that ties the five together or at all? I suppose, it's hard to say, I suppose I chose ones that were quite diverse in different ways, mm. you know, where the great examples of adaptation mm. through to um, truly horrifying true stories. Mm. Um, so the, there's there's a range of things. I think for me, back to perhaps what I began with, just that experiential thing, I think with all of those films, I, I, I don't daydream, you know, I watch them and I find them, even on a repeated viewing, absolutely entrancing. You know, whereas I find with a lot of the time I'm I'm thinking about stuff I should be doing instead or whatever <laughs> what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. But there's something really quite um, en entrancing about them. And that's back to the idea of the ride, I think, for me, in some ways, is a bit strap yourself in mm. and, and go with it, you know. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's right. That's right. So let, let's remind people then you you are going to be speaking at the, uh, the Miskatonic um, Institute about... Horror and Hilarity, The Legacy of the Grand Guillaume, and that's Thursday the 7th of February at the Horse Hospital in central London. There'll be a link in the show notes so people can find out exactly where that is and get tickets if it's what they're into. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. The music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.